Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You show. We're uh, coming to you live here from snowy Maine, and we have guest Mark Crowley. Mark, do I need to put the C in there or just Mark Crowley? Yes, please. Yes, <laughs> Mark that's... C. Crowley. <laughs> who, uh, I know we had some, I had some confusion. I sent you an email, and the email went to somebody else because I forgot the C. So anyone, anyway, welcome, and uh, thank you for being here live with us on the Best Ever You show. It, uh, it matters that you're here with us, so thank you for, for being here. You're very welcome. Um, so, boy, you've got – what don't you have? It's amazing. I want to direct people to your website while we're listening live, markccrowley.com. Am I, and I'm saying your name right, too, right? Is it, you are, is it Crowley you are. or Crowley? Crowley. Crowley. Okay, I want to just make sure I get everything right. I'll answer to both, so. <laughs> well, it's one of those um this is one of those moments where I have not met you before, really talked to you except on Twitter. And so I really appreciate you taking the leap of faith and coming live on a radio show with us. And um so I want to direct people to your website. It's markccrowley.com, M A R K C C R O W L E Y.com. So if you're following following with us live, you can also look at his website, which is really informative, by the way. I love how you have all of your articles, all your published articles listed on the right side of your website. That's, um, you know, I love it when you can sort of learn something from somebody else. And that's a that's a really nice presentation of, of a body of work. That it looks like you've been working really hard for a long time. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, what I'm really trying to do is to change, you know, a collective mindset on how we manage and lead people at work. And my thesis has to do with the heart, which is that we're feeling, sensing people and that our emotions and feelings drive most of our behavior, whether we acknowledge it or not consciously. And so I named my book Lead from the Heart, and and that's like, you know, may you might as well have called it kick me in the stomach or um, this will never work or, you know, kryptonite is your tool for leadership. You know, anything that's going to get people roused up to believe that this could never work and this isn't going to, this isn't really real. It's not valid. It's actually misinformed. And so the idea of the articles and, uh, and I've subsequently started a podcast is really strategic in the sense that if I want people to buy into the idea that we need to lead from the heart and not from the mind so much, then there needs to be an educational process that takes time. You know, you're not going to change people's perspectives. You're not going to change people's resistance overnight. And so I thought, well, I'll just start writing articles until people go, oh, like, it's kind of interesting. And then, oh, like that's even more <laughs> interesting. And that's actually compelling. And that's interesting. And ultimately, get people to where I think we're moving, which is 
a, a very common acceptance that the way we're managing isn't working, and we actually everything we've always believed about leading, which was leave the heart out of it, is patently wrong. And by changing our mindset on that, we're actually going to get greater performance and loyalty engagement out of people. We have something in common. We have a financial oh, yeah. services background. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Um my my other hat, my other half of me, my husband and the other part of me does everything financial services for years and years since my 20s and we own a compliance firm together called Compliance 4. So it was it's really interesting to me that um you kind of did what I did. I went I I had I've four children when the littlest one went to uh, school, I was like, oh, cool, okay, I'll go back to work. And I went back to work in the financial indus- financial services industry, and I was like, oh, okay, no, I'm not. <laughs> and you're kind of like that. You're like, oh, twice you've had these really national high-level uh, jobs, senior vice president, national sales manager, and all these things in financial services. And you decided um, in a, how tell, – tell us that process of how you decided not to do that anymore. Um, I spent, you know, over 20 years in financial services, and like you mentioned, I worked my way up on the retail banking side to a national-level position, and then the organization I worked for, which was one of the largest American financial institutions, said, we'd like for you to come into the investment world, and so I got all my securities license and started managing stockbrokers, people that are driven by money ostensibly, right? And so what I ended up proving was that the more you care for people individually, personally, uh, you're going to get even greater performance out of people who only get paid if they make a sale. And so my very first year in that role, we had incremental profitability, revenue, and I was named leader of the year. And interestingly, the organization went on to be sold to another organization, and I was so repulsed by how that, just the entire culture of the acquiring uh, organization and how they led people and how they just disregarded people that Mm -hmm. I decided to leave, and that was about six, seven months after they acquired us, and I had to make a decision about, well, do I go back to work? Like, what do I do next? And so I decided that I was going to really create just sort of, you know, a book that was... Uh, was intending to convey that I had learned through my experience certain management practices that if you implemented them collectively, four key ways of managing people, that you would get phenomenally greater performance. And it was more of a bucket list kind of a thing. I mean, I knew that I had something meaningful to say, but in the process of writing the book, I found and discovered that I have something profoundly important to say which is that we are not managing people the way people need to be led. It's one of the reasons why engagement isn't getting any better, and it's low all over the world, and it's horribly low in America, but even outside in Great Britain and Europe, it's in the teens. We see massive increases in mental health problems and depression and burnout, and you look at that and you say, well, can that be the best thing that we can do for people, noting that if people are in their best state, 
that they're going to do better work. And so what I discovered was that there's science that now validates, it kind of refutes what even medical science believed for 300 years, which was that the mind is where all of our cognitive ability is. Our mind, we're rational beings. I think, therefore, I am. This is the way we operate. You keep the heart out of leadership, and really the more you care about, the more you support people, the more you help them grow, the more you appreciate them, the more that you build trust with them, that you create a safe psychologically and emotional workplace. All of these kinds of things actually are what we human beings are hardwired to need in order to thrive. And so it's no surprise that you get greater performance out of people because you're basically giving them the right, you know, the degree of gasoline, if you will. You know, if we're supposed to run on 92 and we're putting 80 into the tank, we're never going to get out of what we want from people. So um, ultimately, I realized I'm not going back to work. I'm, I'm the Pied Piper for this idea. This is what I'm. This is what I need to be expressing. And so I, I I'll tell you a, a story. I. When the book was coming out, and I was going to call it Lead from the Heart, it was all based on this science. And I hired a marketing specialist, somebody who works with authors like me, who is actually very experienced and work with some really top people and helping them to strategize on how you effectively build your brand and get people to know you. Because obviously, I you know, was coming new to this, of leaving financial services, nobody knew who I was. And so I paid her $10,000, and she read the book, and she started reading some of the articles you were mentioning. And she goes, she goes you, you really have something here. And I said, oh, well, thank you. And she goes, yeah, and I have a strategy for you, plan A and plan B. You're not going to like plan A. But I said, well, just tell me what it is. And she said, you're going to effing fail if you continue to use the words lead from the heart. And I said, you just told me I had something <laughs> oh, no. good here. You know, and she goes, you do, but the world isn't ready for this. And so it's sort of this, you just have to, you know, evolve and allow people to meet you where you are. And so that's kind of what the work is. Was that $10,000? Did that continue on or was it $10,000? No, it was, <laughs> you paid you know, somebody that was to give you plan ten, A that I, wasn't going to work. I asked her specifically, I go, did you cash that check already? Because I'm really not getting much out of this. I but back. <laughs> she was trying to help me. She was trying to say, you're it. going to take a lot of pain from this because so many people just automatically assume that you're a nut or a spiritualist or, you know, yeah. you're, you're, not, you're not connected to the real world. Well, that definitely falls into the category of the worst advice you've ever received. On Twitter the other day, I, I put a, a call out there for the best advice people had received and the worst, and I think that goes right into the sort of best and worst, right? Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, when exactly. somebody gives you something uh, it, to – I mean, you know, she's, I said, well, what do you want me to do? And she goes, if you just call it killer engagement, you know, you can oh, – no. when you're giving speeches and things, you can just tell people about the heart, and you never have to go forward with that. And I said, well, that's just – that's you're right. I knew. I mean, I knew she was telling me. You know, look, you're going to go through, through some treacherous roads here in order to get to your destination, and I can give you a safer route. But it wasn't authentic, and it wasn't really aligned to the message. I mean, I could have said killer engagement, but what's that? You know, what I'm really trying to say is, let's reinvent how we manage people, tied to what the science is showing us. You know, really leads people and influences people naturally to do their best work. And it, by the way, it's in there. It's not just from a leadership standpoint, but it, it happens to work for us. We're healthier, we're thriving, we're happy, you know, 
So it's kind of like you, we just can't – what we're doing is unsustainable. You can't just continue to harm people through the work. And, you know, the last few years, the last few years, I mean, you're really since cell phones have come out and, and Blackberries and so forth, that, you know, we, we, we have no boundaries. People are working exceedingly long <laughs> hours. They're responding to texts at dinner. You know, they're taking phone calls late at night or early in the morning. And it's so disruptive to – you know, our, our well-being, that this is all very unsustainable, and we have to kind of take a big look at this and say, is this working? I mean, how do, how do you demonstrate that this is working? And if it's not, then why don't we try doing something different? And I think what the inclination is is that you look at yourself and you go, well, you know, I'm a pretty top leader here. I'm a, you know, high-ranking person, and I've been successful, so why should I have to change? So I used to think it was going to be noble CEOs that were going to be the ones who said, look, you know, we're going to change our cultures, we're going to adapt to this, we, we have all this information here, we should use it. And instead, it's the bottom up. It's the new generations of workers that are coming in saying, I'm not putting up with this. I'm not going to work in an environment that doesn't care about me, that doesn't support me. And if you can give me that, I'll stay put and I'll do great work for you. But if not, I'm out the door. And the baby boomers, and to some extent Gen X, was was very willing to sort of say, that's just the way it is. You have to suck it up and take bad bosses and take bad environments and endure all that stress. And millennials and Gen, Gen Z that's coming behind them, they're like, not me, man. I'm not putting up with this. And so they're forcing organizations to change. There's There's very little nobility. There are some organizations that are doing this, but for the most part, the reason that people are going to have to change, Elizabeth, is because they're being forced to. They're not being able to attract or keep the really great people that they need. The only way they do, they'll do this is to adapt what I'm, you know, pretty much been prescribing for the last six, seven, eight, nine years. Yeah. Do you think um, something's going to give? You know, I I think back to me in my twenties and, um, you know, trying to achieve and then. Um, having children and being pregnant in the workplace and trying to figure out if I was going to have a job when I came back from maternity leave, if I could even take a maternity leave. I mean, all these factors um, layer that in with being tired with new babies, you know, uh, you know, it just, it's like a recipe for health. It was a recipe for health disaster for me. Um, Do you think, is it the, is it the rules? that we you know have to abide by that aren't working like you only get 2 weeks of vacation or 40 hours of this or you know is it the rules that don't work that they try that people try it's to impose on us in the drives, world? what is it that doesn't work it's the philosophy it's not the rules the rules are a byproduct of the philosophy which is squeeze people in order to get in order to make profit in order to drive the stock price higher we need to squeeze people so, you know, the, for example, one of the insidious ideas, as far as I'm concerned, is giving people unlimited vacation. And you would say, well, wait a minute, I only get two weeks, so unlimited, that's like fantastic. And what, but what we found is that people don't take it because it's yeah. so ambiguous that people feel like, well, you know, if I take it, is is this going to be right? You know, people are going to judge me. And so they actually take less. And then when people leave organizations, they decide to leave for whatever reason. Their spouse gets a new job or they find something that pays them more or gives them a greater opportunity. The companies don't have to pay them out the vacation that they never took. So you look at that and you say, well, 
here's this is an idea that was meant to, to convey to people that you're valued, that you're you know that we want to do more for you. And in fact, I believe that many cases, most cases, when companies do this, they're doing it with the understanding that people are going to take less vacation and it's going to cost us less in the end because we don't have to pay it out when people leave. I I just think that that is a right out of the gate is a profound way of destroying trust and credibility. And so immediately we tend to reciprocate, whether it's positive or negative. So if we feel that a company is out to get us or isn't doesn't have our best interest at heart, really isn't truly interested in seeing, you know, the best for us, well, then we go, well, then I'm not going to give them my best. You know, I'm not going to think about this place on my weekends and I'm not going to come in early or stay late or, you know, I'm just going to give them what I can give them and, uh, you know, enough to keep a job. And is that what we want? So we think that we can get away with this and all these ideas look really good on paper, but it's really it's testing them for with our heart. I know that sounds soft and potentially weak, but it's not. No, it's I, like, I what, think it's what so does needed. heart tell you to do? <laughs> And the heart says, yeah. that's really an unfair thing to do. If somebody works here for a few years and they accrue vacation time and then they end up leaving and they haven't taken that vacation time, it's fair to pay them for that. They didn't take the time. They were working for you instead. And so, you know, it's even even giving people two weeks, we don't insist that people take it or be, we begrudge people when they go, hey, you know, I'm thinking about taking a couple of weeks at the lake with my family. Oh, really? Now? Like, we, you know, this is not a good time. And it's like, when is that good time? You know, and right. so I've, what I found is that, um, you know, I, I was on the retail banking side. You, you know more about me than most people, which is that I spent a big percentage of my time working, running large branch networks. But I knew all the people, and I cared about the people. And when I went into the investment world, the investment senior VPs, the guys that were now going to be reporting into me, said, hey, you know, the way you've been managing in the branch system isn't going to work here. And I said, well, why do you think that? And they go, well, because these guys, they just want to make money. They just want to be left alone. They, you know, th this isn't going to work. I mean, they were so dismissive. So what I did was I got on the plane and I went all over the country and I met with the top 25 brokers. This is basically, you know, the top, the creme de la creme. These are the people making the most money. And uh, I said, you know, I just, you know, I told them I was coming. And so I'd come in and I'd sit down and I'd say, well, you know, I'm here as the new national sales manager. And really all I want to know is how can I help you do better? Like, what can I do? And I'd say like, 50% of them at least said to me right out of the gate, just being here, just doing this is, is a huge impact. Like you would, you would find time to get on a plane just to come to meet with me. And I'm like, what? Like, like that's my job, right? And they, they didn't see it that way because no one had ever done it before. And then I said, okay, so yeah. what else would you like? And they said, well, we'd like some coaching. We'd like some development. We want to learn. I go, well, I was told you want to be left alone. They're like, who told you that? Like the people that have been managing you for the last few years. So I got this massive response, you know, to not only validated that everything that I was doing in the retail banking world was transferable, human to human, job to job, but that we have – it just validated how wrong we are about what people want and what people need. People, the best performers don't want to be left alone. They want your attention, and they want to learn from you, and they want to grow, and they want to know that you know who they are. Um, 
it sounds so simple, but this isn't common practice. You know, I could just tell you, you're the best boss ever. You're one of those. You're one of those just epically great bosses that you just pray that you have. And um, I, ha- I had a boss like you one time. His name was Rick Atterbury. When I worked at Merrill Corporation, I was just starting there, and I was just out of college, and um, mentored me and helped me, and um, you know, just epically helpful. And um, I, it, I used to say, you know. And I and I this isn't my quote or anything like that, but people will always remember how you treated them. Absolutely, well, yeah. will mean, remember it, it, how you treated a them. There's famous expression that people, you know, people remember not they don't remember the words that you say; they remember how you make them feel, which yeah. is, you know, that's truth. This is truth, and this is, you know, I've put that out on Twitter, and it gets this massive response. And I, I often think, do people really understand what this is saying? You know, if you if you really truly understand that what matters is how you make people feel, then why wouldn't you go out of your way to make people feel good? Um, right. But I'll tell you something interesting. You know, I the you know having been away now for several years from managing people, I still get people saying to me, sending me messages saying, you know, do you realize how much you helped me, and do you realize how much I grew under you, and that's flattering and really wonderful and validation. But I want you to know also that if I were to ask or if anyone were to ask 100 people that used to work for me to say what's one word that described Mark Crowley, it, it might not be hard. It would probably be demanding. So what I learned was that when you support people and you support their needs and you meet their needs, you give them everything that they need in order to thrive, they're going to kill it so easily. They're going to perform so well that they're going to outperform whatever everybody else is doing. So we were, <coughs> excuse me, so still true. fighting bronchitis here. We, we would sorry. sit in rooms and say, what can we do? Like how much more could we do than what we're being asked? noting that there were incentives aligned to it and people were ending up being rewarded for it and so they had a vested interest in doing more. And so, you know, I had the top performing region for 36 consecutive months on the bank okay. side and then in my first year in investments we set records for, you know, for sales, revenue and profit and all I did was show people a little bit of love, you know, and that's <laughs> what a big difference this makes. Yeah, it's, it's um have you ever had a boss that says, well, I, I just really don't like people? <laughs> just like, wait a minute. Yeah, what? right? I mean, but we <laughs> have to weed like those people, people like, oh. out. You know, <laughs> uh, it, you have to love people. It, I know that yeah. even that, you know, is probably, you know, peop- somebody's out there Whatever. In, yeah. in the ether shaking their head. But it, it, it it's true. You have to really love people. And, and, not, and not only love people, but you have to, you have to get – you have to derive joy and personal satisfaction out of seeing other people do well. And that's one of the big problems in business is that oh. managers get into managing, you know, and then they feel threatened by the very people that they're supposed to be supporting, you know. And you look at, like, college sports. Like, I, I love college basketball. And you look at the best teams. I'm a big Villanova fan, and the guy Jay Wright, he's won two national championships and was just named the college basketball coach of the decade. Pretty phenomenal guy. And I look at him, and all he's doing is helping individuals. He's putting their arms around them. He's talking to them individually. He's teaching them. He's not going – 
this guy's going to be a star making millions one day. I'm not helping this guy. That's never, never even crossed his mind, you know? It's all about yeah. loving his players and teaching them to perform, and they win, and they win, and they win, and there's no difference about what he does to help uh, college athletes perform and excel than what I'm talking about in business. Yeah, my my experience as an athlete is so much different than my son's experience as a college baseball player or as an athlete all throughout high school and all the things. Baseball, what did you play? Um, uh, oh, it's like baseball family. I mean, even okay. even like I'm embraced. I'm like, oh, my God, you guys are so epically amazing. Like I have um, Coach Solano coming on the show tomorrow morning, and that's the New Haven, the head coach of New Haven Baseball, and he absolutely loves every one of those players and I don't know how you keep them all straight from year to year to year doing this so many years, but he's loved and cherished. And, you know, he tells the guys all the time, you know, I care about you. Yep, I care about winning, but I care about you. And he says it way better, but I get totally get what you mean. Those people, they're the best to be around when you need them, when, you know, when you, when you really do need help to learn and grow and everything. But it's so much fun also to turn around and give that back to up-and-coming people or whoever it is that crosses your path, you know, I love doing that. There's nothing more cool than seeing somebody call and go, hey, can you teach me how to write a book? It's like, heck, yeah, I can. What would you like to do? I may not, you know, I may not have everything perfect, but I've got a general idea of how to help you or at least set you in the right direction. You know, things like that. Isn't that just just a blast? Yes. I mean, and you made me think of something um sort of in real time here that so um i just love this guy jay wright and i i just Mm -hmm. watch him and try to learn from him and try to see how he behaves and villanova is a young team and i've watched probably like the last four or five games and they've you know they've won a couple of national championships over the last few years and everybody's gunning for him everybody wants to win and so it seems like every game that i've been watching lately they're down like 15 points early. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, and I'm starting to panic for this team. Like they're not going to be able to come back. And I see him just patiently on the sidelines. He's showing no stress at all. He's not yelling at the players. That was stupid. Where were you? You know, you should have made that shot or whatever. He's not doing any of that. He's just very positive. Stay to your plan. And what he's demonstrating to these kids and this happened last night, which is why this is so topical. They're playing a team that yeah. hasn't beat them in 20 years, and they were up 15 points in the first half. And I'm like, uh-oh, yeah, this isn't going to go well. And like, I've seen this scenario over and over, and I fall for it every time. And so what does Jay Wright do? Yeah. He says, just stay to the plan. Just keep doing what you're doing. And he's demonstrating how much he trusts them, how much he believes yep. in them. And this is – this is the cornerstone of everything I'm talking about. Anytime anyone ever said to me, Mark, we see potential in you. Mark, we see talent in you. We think you have an incredible future. Anytime anybody said anything like that, my first instinct was to hug them. My second instinct was to go <laughs> prove them right. You know, I'm going to go yeah. do great work for you. We're yeah, all the like, same. That's the way I feel too. Like, please, you know, <laughs> that's epic. You know, that reminds me of like Dabo Sweeney um, the other night, you know, making sure his quarterback was okay. 
Did you see that moment where yeah. he went up to him and, and looked him in the face and kind of put his arms around him and kind of gave him a hug? Um, the Clemson quarterback, I can't remember his name at this exact moment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he went over to him and they were down. You know, they, they, they lost were losing. that game. Yes, yeah. right? Did you see it? What a I moment. I did. And it, it, I, none of this is lost on me. I'm paying attention because I think coaching is the model. I think the best sports coaches, I mean, by the way, Mike Krzyzewski, who's, you know, going to be in the yeah. Hall of Fame, one of the most, if not, I think the winningest college basketball coach of all time at Duke University. He wrote yeah. a book <laughs> subtitled Lead from the Heart. So, and, and, I, and I read <laughs> it. Got to get together and, and hold the books up. <laughs> Right. You know, and it's right. all about, you know, you have to care about your players. And it's like, you know, yeah. by the way, uh, interestingly, um, at the, the, uh, so Villanova won the national championship, I think, in 18 and 2015. And one of those yep. two years, I forget which one it was, somebody thought, well, they just won the NCAA tournament. So they're the number one team out of the top 65 teams in the country. So they, you know, they, they have this tournament every year, the top 65 teams play it out. And ultimately, there's a winner, and Villanova won. So what they did I got was crap they for said, picking them. You know that I got uh, sorry me. for saying crap, but I, I'll, I'll I put Villanova as my winner because uh, I lose every year. So I'll, you know, I'll I'll put the money on your picks. So what ended no, up no, happening? No, don't. <laughs> at me and he's like, wait a minute, what? I'm like, I don't know. I just like them. <laughs> he's like, oh so god. Some somebody said, let's take the top 64 teams in the same you know the same you know settings that they had them in like number 64 plays number one and 63 plays number two and so forth and they work it out um so the lowest seed plays the top seed and let's just play it out to see who would win academically so of these 65 colleges which one has the best academics and vis-a-vis graduation rates and so villanova won that too and so you look at that and you go wait a minute they're playing all these intense games. Every all the other teams are, you know, trying to trying to beat them and gun after them, and they're having this stunning performance. You would think, oh, these guys are on buses, they're on airplanes, they don't have enough time to study. They're probably not the best students anyway because they got recruited to the school for athletics, and instead he's got one of the highest graduation rates. And you look at that and you go, well, is that by accident? No, because he cares about that too. He's paying yep. attention to that. He wants to make that happen for them. So it's like, how are you doing isn't just, you know, how's your jump shot? It's how are you doing in your classes? That's how you manage people. That is the part that I I did not understand at all about college athletics until our son started playing baseball at New Haven. And um, their their benchmark is like the whole team gets a 3.0 or higher. And that's but what they're striving for. You know, that's not for. normal, right? I mean, you look at Oklahoma and Alabama, some of these programs that r- routinely have, you know, the greatest, um, you know, college football performance year in and year out, and their graduation rates are in the, you know, 20, 30% range. So people are yeah, coming no, and playing football I... and coming out with no degree, no education, you know, and this has been yeah. sort of, um, you well, know, a game that's been played. That's no under way to this do it. Leadership. Yeah, under the leadership of Coach Solano and Coach Rispoli, our child got a 4.0. That's I mean, and play and as a college well, baseball. I mean, I did a lot of them, work, like, you've got to be basic, kidding me. Right? I mean, but, yeah, what'd you say? That matters to work coaches ethic. or it doesn't. Oh, it's, it's amazing. So it's been such a learning 
a really cool learning experience. And what I love about them is they even, you know, let us parents learn. You know, as long as you're not annoying or talking about, you know, your kid playing, you know, all this dumb stuff um, that m- matters to a lot of people but <laughs> does not matter to me, you, you get to learn what they think and how they do things and everything. And it's really neat to have access to their brains. And their behavior and, and things like that. I, I I'm glad I you're paying so attention. Because it's taught me I, volumes. I think you can learn from everyone. So I'm always paying attention to everyone. You know, everybody has yeah. something to teach. I just joined a new gym, and the guy who literally cleans the the locker room asked me what I did, and I told him. And uh, two days later, I was leaving the gym, and he started. He goes, "Hey, does this sound familiar to you?" And uh, I was like, <laughs> "Yes." Like. Like I had, I was like, where do I know that from? And I go, wait a minute, that's the opening to one of my recent podcasts. Like, he's gone <laughs> and listened to it, you know. And I'm Aww. like, oh, this is like amazing, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I, you know, paying attention to people, learning from everyone, seeing how they approach things, particularly highly successful people like, sounds like your baseball coaches, um, oh, can only cool. enhance yeah. you. Um, okay, so we're going, we're gonna break our format here a little bit in that um, I'm going to do, so we're going to do radio and then we're going to go over and do a recorded, like a TV type of interview that's going to go up on YouTube. So I'm just telling our listeners we're not going to go the full hour today with this because we're going to ask Mark to come back at 2 o'clock, which will not be really, I'm not going to open that link up to the public, I think. I think we're just going to tape it and then I'll post it onto YouTube later. Does that work for you, Mark? No, I'm totally game. Okay, but before we go, I want to I want to talk about a little bit about your book because the first sentence is chilling. Um, it's can I read this? Do you have permission sure. to read the first sentence sure. of your book? Mm-hmm. I was raised by wolves. Okay, so in listening to you, I would never, unless I read this, go, oh my gosh, tell me more about this because that must have been that's so. You probably were this person the whole time, but going, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what's going on in my life? Do you want to talk about your childhood a little bit? Because it's – Well, um, uh, you know, wow. I mean, it's, uh, I, I'll never forget when it hit me, you know, like how do you start this book? And and I don't – I'm going to venture that there aren't too many leadership books to start off with. I was raised by wolves, and, you know, I'm laughing about this, but it wasn't a fun upbringing at all. It was oh. my mom died when I was very young, and I was raised by uh, my father, who was not just an alcoholic, actually, you know, surprisingly a very successful person in his career, but nevertheless, and a psychologically and abusive, deeply abusive. Um, and, and I did not share this within the course of um, that writing that, that preface, but I have siblings and the impact that I will just say in the big picture that the harm that my father did through his m- massive, constant, incessant, and, and very dark approach to raising us, that um, the harm, I'll just say, without betraying you know, my, my brothers and sisters, that um, it's, it's absolutely indescribable. Um, and I have a twin brother that I haven't seen in the last 15 years. I'm not even sure where he is because the abuse was so great. 
And when we were right right after we graduated from high school, we were both kicked out of the house at the same time without any financial support, emotional support, never went back for a holiday, never went back for a birthday, um, you know, just no one there for us. And um, and it, it was very, very, very hard to oh, try to work your, your way through being, you know, thrown out on the street and also trying to make your life successful. And so I, you know, my father used to tell me that I would never amount to anything that, that, you know, that I was fundamentally flawed, that I lacked. Lacked is one of his operant words. And when you have that going through your mind, even in your, when you're not around, you unfortunately repeat that. You, you, you keep that voice in, in your mind. And that, that was, you know, where I am today and where I was, you know, 30 years ago has a lot to do with working through that and not allowing that voice to interfere with, you know, who I really wanted to be and who I believed I could be and who I had at least enough people in my life telling me that you're not that person. But it it was it very, very difficult to overcome that when you hear it for the first 18 years of your life and you don't have anybody to insulate you from that. I, meaning, you know, my mom had, had tried to do that. And so yeah. by being told that I was never going to amount to anything, that I would be a massive failure in life, imagine just just having your own father tell you that over and over and over. Um, and no matter how hard you tried, no matter how successful you were, you were always told. He told me that I was pusillanimous, which meant that you are fundamentally, you have a lack of, of ambition and drive, fundamental lack of ambition and drive. You know, And I'm like, I couldn't be doing any more in my day to demonstrate that I wasn't that. You know, uh, but I was right. convinced that if I didn't graduate from college, that I would um, I would be the failure he told me I would be. And so, no matter what, I was trying to do my best. I should have been thrown out of school my freshman year because I just I didn't even go a lot of the times. But I had professors like, "Where is he? Can't get him back here." Like I don't know why, but. They were paying attention, and it was enough to keep me going. And then ultimately, I kind of got the flow of it and figured out, here's how I have, how I can make money, and here's here's when I work, and here's when I study, and here's when I go to school, and that's pretty much the routine for you know five years of getting through college. But I did it, and I graduated, and I actually did really well in the last couple of years, and I had a sense of myself that you know maybe I could make make my life work. And when I got into retail banking, when I actually got my first job out of college, um, people saw something in me, and they gave me an opportunity to manage people very early on. And without yeah, realizing it, it, I decided to give people what I never got growing up. And I did not make that decision consciously. But I lacked love. I lacked support. I lacked safety. You know, I mean, safety sounds like, well, that's basic, but I never had it. You know, I always felt like I was, you know, one car problem away from not being able to afford my rent or go to school and pay my books and tuition and all those kinds of things and emotionally not having anybody really in your corner. And so I just started to give people. I just helped them and taught them and coached them and made them feel safe and made them feel valued. And I never realized that I was doing this, but all my teams were excelling. And so the, my company just kept, you're like really good at getting results. So we're going to give you more and more. And of course, my dad's voice was, 
you're a loser, you're never going to be that person. And so I have these massive insecurities, like people are going to figure out pretty quickly here that I'm not that guy. And so I'm living with that fear and trying to deal with that and try to transcend that at the same time. I'm leveraging what my upbringing told me was what basically what if I had had these things, I could have been thriving as a human being. So why wouldn't it work for other people? And I did it unconsciously, but, you know, over like a 20-year career, I just kept getting promoted, 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 and getting better and better teams and more success. And I just figured this is the way everybody manages. I never questioned what I was doing. I'm like, (laughs) I'm getting the results that I need, so why am I questioning this? And so I finally, I hired this person, and she was still in college, and then like 18 years later, she came into my office one day, and she's still working for me in a totally different capacity, and she goes, you realize you manage people very differently, don't you? I was like, what do you mean? And so she started to like, just give me like just a short list of things that I do. And she goes, tell me about, tell me one more person that you know that does this. And that led me to thinking, oh my God, like she's right. And how did I learn to do this? I'm like kidding. I was in my forties when I'm having this epiphany. So I started to really refine it and say, okay, well, what if I do more of this and a little bit less of this? And so I kind of perfected what is it that people need tied to this upbringing. So the grand conclusion of this is that I have forgiven my father. (laughs) He's long been gone. Um, I don't let the wake drive my boat. Um, It's very, very painful to work through all of that, and it wasn't something that happened overnight. It took me probably until yesterday to get through the end of it, but it led me to leading people in a way that no one else would have really thought of had they not had that upbringing. So in this very perverse way, I've had to kind of accept that this all happened for a reason, you know, and I'm grateful for the reason because the work I'm doing right now, I think, you know, I never could have been doing it. I never would have had a credible voice and it's pretty hard for somebody to come up to me and go, you know, this is never going to work in engineering or this is never going to work in because I've had enough experience where I've proven that it works, that it's universally mm-hmm. true of human beings. It's got nothing to do with financial services or, you know, or anything else for that matter. So thank you for sharing all of that because I think that touches people's hearts. And you know it gives people some inspiration if they're going through the same thing or some you know anything um that you that you can get through it do you before we go do you have any um was there any particular resource or anything that you did to help you get through that i just want to make sure people listening might have you know yes you you know you you worked your way through that but was there any I went. That you I, could share I, that I, might one, give somebody some direction. At one point, I I went to a counselor. He was a psychologist, and I think I saw him like seven or eight times. And um, he goes, "You know, you've really done a remarkable job of managing this." He goes, "I don't know how you did it." He goes, "But I don't really think I can help you anymore." And uh, so we parted ways. And but there was sort of like this, like I knew that he was wrong, but. I don't think I had the courage to say to him, hey, doc, you're going to have to dig deeper here to find the much bigger problem than you're realizing is there. And (laughs) it it was interesting, but, you know, um, it's hard to describe what this person does, but I'll just, I will say that I have somebody in my life who is, it's not religious, but there's a very spiritual implication to this. 
And um, one day she said to me, you know this wasn't about you, don't you? Right. And I didn't. It never crossed my mind. You you tend to personalize it. You 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 know when you hear things. I mean, I I really truly believe that most of us, most people, are operating from their childhood selves and don't realize it. And so, if you hear a voice for eighteen years, you're going to probably continue that voice, and you're going to think, "Hey, how did I get in all this trouble? I must be the problem." And when she said it, it was like, and I'm you know, and the interesting Amazing. thing was, when this happened. And when I sought out this help, coincided with my decision to write a book. Because as I started to write it, I realized this was high enough of a bar that transcended what I believed I was capable of, tied to what I was told I was capable of. So I heard this voice saying, you're not a writer. You're, you're not that person. Other people are writers. More sophisticated, better, you know, better communicators, people who have, you know, whatever. You have all this fantasy, and this is your mind trying to screw you. And your mind trying to screw you tied to beliefs and attitudes that were conveyed to you, you know, by, in my case, my father, that was faulty wiring, faulty programming. But nevertheless, I truly believed that I wasn't going to be able to write the book. And even after right. I wrote the book, the same person who's been helping me all these years said to me, is there, are you a writer? And I said, I don't know that I can, you know, and I'd written for Fast Company. I'd already <laughs> written dozens yes, of our, yes, yes. you know, and I, <laughs> I, couldn't, am a writer. <laughs> I couldn't square it. And she goes, really? You can't, you don't realize that? And I said, I, you know, it's almost like it happened by accident. So yeah. the long and story, yeah, long the long point of all this is that it takes time to undo this. You can be successful in your life, you know, without it. But I never would have worked it through. I never would have written the book had I not gone through and revisited this. And you mentioned the preface. That was the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. I absolutely I wanted to break things. I have glass doors where I wrote my book, and I wanted—I can't tell you the number of times I just wanted to take a, a brick and just throw it right through the glass because I was trying to confront what that voice was, and until you can get to the other side of it and believe that you can actually transcend that, you're, you're forced with like these feelings of failure. And this person, the same person that's been coaching me, she said, you not only need to tell your story in the book, but you need to write it now. And so as I started to write it, I thought, I don't want to relive this. I don't want to relive all of the greatest pain of my life in sequence. But by doing that, by bringing it to the surface and looking at it and realizing it wasn't about me, it was totally about somebody else and his issues and not mine and that I was not fundamentally flawed, as I was told, then you're able to get through it. Yeah. And I think that's what you're picking up today. I'm not that person anymore because it just doesn't, it just doesn't impact me anyway, anywhere near the way it did, you know, all the way into, you know, sadly, my mid my mid forties rather. Yeah. Well, it's really, I, I love your kindness. I love your heart, and I love the fact that you said yes on Twitter to being here today because <laughs> it's so, it's, it's, you're just remarkable and and the best boss ever. I, that's my nickname for you. <laughs> the best Thank boss you. Ever. I, I love that. You, I hope you'll welcome that because my little <laughs> I thing. Do. But, um, I do. I <laughs> do. 
Yeah, you you change lives, and you can just you can just feel it if if you were somebody's boss, how much different the whole entire workplace would be. So, good luck being that because that's a, that's a big crowd, <laughs> but I think you can do it. Um, anyway, all right, so we're gonna end, and I want to thank you for being on the Best Ever You Show and sharing your story and um, and sharing more about your book and your life and everything with us. So thank you very much. You're very and, welcome. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening to the Best Ever You show. And um, I'm just going just gonna to be quiet, I guess, right there. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You show. Want more? <laughs> Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You.